Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. So, you know, we've been focusing so much with respect to uh, trade talks between the U.S. and China that we forgot about all the other places in the world, including in Europe, where evidently uh, they are kind of not that pleased. You have them trying to negotiate their own trade deal with China. Uh, And then you also have the fact that President Trump now just threw out these potential tariffs on the 25 percent of all autos that come into the U.S. uh, that are from outside countries. I want to bring in Richard Bravo. He is a Bloomberg uh, news editor who has been tracking this. What's the mood there when it comes to uh, trade discussions? Well, there's certainly a lot of confusion right now in Europe uh, because nobody really knows what this means and what the likelihood of these tariffs actually being instituted are. Um, But as you know, uh, the EU is currently in negotiations with Washington over steel tariffs, and these steel and aluminum tariffs are set to go into effect uh, starting June 1st, unless they can make some kind of side agreement. So uh, this new set of possible tariffs on automobiles really does throw a wrench into those negotiations, which, which are ongoing. So uh, I think the, the overriding sentiment right now is, is confusion in Europe. So I'm trying to get a sense of how realistic people think it is that the U.S. is going to impose tariffs on uh, foreign cars coming into the U.S. at this point. Do you have a sense of that? Um, it's it's hard to gauge at this point, but when the steel tariffs were imposed, those went into effect in March. But the initial threat was about a year ago. So it, it, even if these auto tariffs do go into effect, it's not something that people expect would happen immediately. But I mean, looking at, at how the Trump administration uh, engages in these deals, um, many times they 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 don't come about but yeah. it obviously because germany has so many auto exports it is a threat that they do need to take seriously irrespective of whether or not they they think it will eventually come to pass all bark no bite that it has been the uh mantra richard bravo thank you so much for joining us richard bravo is a bloomberg news editor coming to us from london volkswagen shares down almost three percent looking at bmw shares down also almost three percent jonathan as they try to weigh what these potential tariffs could mean you found some price action congratulations thank because you futures are doing absolutely I nothing a star. on any of this i want to bring in julian jessup of the institute of economic affairs the chief economist joining us from london i'm um, julian How do you view the events and the reporting around the trade issue, the threat of global auto terrorists from the United States? Is this just a negotiating strategy? Well, I mean, to be honest, I find it a bit depressing either way. Um, You know, whether or not you think it's good or bad politics, it's certainly bad economics. This sort of um, protectionist measure is both unfair and inefficient. It's, It's unfair because it forces US consumers to pay higher prices and have less choice than they would otherwise have done. And it's inefficient because it's reducing the competitive pressure on domestic auto manufacturers in the US to uh, to improve the quality and price of the things they want to try and sell. So um, it may or may not score some short-term political points, but, yeah. but in the long run, I think it leaves everybody worse off. Just in terms of political point scoring, Chancellor Merkel and Premier Lee saying they're committed to free 
and fair trade, um, representing two countries with the biggest trade surpluses on the planet, Julian. Um, hmm. Stinks of hypocrisy, doesn't it? Well, not really. I think, uh, as far as Germany is concerned, the, the reason why they run such a, a huge current account surplus is, is essentially because they hold back domestic demand. It's not that they cheat somehow in international markets. Uh, China perhaps is a bit more guilty of that, the manipulation of the, of the currency there, uh, and also sometimes dumping of things like steel on, on, on world markets. I think that is one of the few areas where some form of intervention, some sort of trade barrier might be justified. Um, but I don't really see any of those arguments applying to the exports of cars from, from Europe to the US, which is simply meeting a demand from US consumers themselves. So what I'm trying to figure out is from an economics perspective, you started out saying this is depressing regardless of whether it goes through. Do you expect that the increased trade tensions, regardless of what actually happens from them, will actually reduce economic growth in the world over the next couple of years? Um, well, I, I think they will. And we've got a, a precedent for that. I mean, in the wake of the, the global recession in 2007, 2008, lots of countries started to introduce new trade barriers that they didn't have before. Um, you know, it's much easier to argue for protectionism when your own economy is, is weak. Uh, and that, I think, actually um, prolonged the, the slump. It certainly led to more weakness in world trade than you, you might have expected. So, again, there's, there's this contrast. You, you score some sort of short term populist points, maybe it's good politics, but you know, economically it, it holds back growth. Certainly if we're looking at the, the future of growth in over the next 10, 20, 30 years, a lot of it is going to come from emerging markets. Um, I mean, China's been leading, but others will, will start to catch up, um, in which case you certainly want more free trade. Um, it might be you end up importing more from these countries yourself, but you've got more opportunities to export too. Something has got lost um, over the last couple of weeks, um, Julian. The focus seems to be once again on the trade surplus or trade deficit with respective countries, when for a moment it was driven by Wilbur Ross, the Commerce Secretary, and it was about the theft of American genius. It was about intellectual property. It was about real issues about the future, not just headline-grabbing stories about getting trade surpluses down $200 billion. Has this administration sort of lost its way a little bit as to what it wants out of the Chinese? Well, I, I think this sort of administration in particular has always been a bit muddled about what trade is about. So it sees a, a trade surplus as a, as a good thing and a trade deficit as, as a bad thing, whereas all those things really are is, is, is the result of decisions made by you know, consumers and companies that you know, they might choose to, to buy a good from overseas rather than one produced domestically. It's not, not a zero-sum game. You know, both sides benefit from trade, whether you're an importer or, or the exporter. Um, what I'm also worried about is increasingly spurious reasons being used to, to justify intervention in, in markets. I mean, a, a good example is the you know, potential security concerns over, over intellectual property and so on. Sometimes that's valid, but it's not obvious to me it's valid in every single occasion. Another yeah. is um, food safety standards or animal welfare standards in the agricultural sector. I think people are finding excuses to, to intervene for narrow, very narrow protectionist interests rather than thinking about the broader economic interests. And whether they're security issues, um, whether the auto situation is a national security issue. An aid to the president, the headline just coming across the Bloomberg, Julian, that trade deficits are a national security concern. Should they be, Julian? That's absolutely ludicrous. Um, you know, I, How do you I, really I, feel? I, exactly. I mean, I, you know, I run, a, I run a deficit with various high street shops in the UK uh, because, you know, try as hard as I like. There's nothing that they want to buy from me, but they've got plenty of things I want to buy from them. I'm not worse off because I run a trade deficit with you know, my local coffee shop. Coffee shop's um, not looking to dominate the world though, is it, Julian? Well, I, some of the high street chains particularly are, but um, 
we have to we have to recognize that you know china is already the the world's second biggest economy in time it will become the become the biggest uh, we want free trade with them of course and if there are particular areas where they're cheating or we don't trust them fair enough we might want to intervene but but the idea that you can measure the the strength or weakness yeah. of relationship purely by the bilateral trade surplus or deficit i'm afraid is economically illiterate julian jessup um, telling us how he really feels, I think, um, of the Institute of Economic Affairs, the chief economist joining us from London. I want to cross over to Alison Williams of Bloomberg Intelligence, the senior analyst for US banks here in, in New York. Alison, you've been following Deutsche Bank very closely. Um, what have we learned about the strategy this morning? So I think that, um, I guess, little surprise in terms of, you know, cuts to the equity business, uh, cutting headcount, you know, giving some new uh, targets. The key for Deutsche Bank is going to be, you know, firstly meeting these targets. I think that's been the disappointment with some of the prior management. And, um, you know, in in my opinion, um, and and Arjun Bauer, who co-covers Deutsche Bank with me, you know, our view is really just that it's the revenue side of things that are that's much more difficult. Keep in mind that um, you know trading is a significant portion of the business. Yeah. Uh, the equity has really been the, the the area that's trailed. We focus on fixed income mostly because it's more important to them. But equity is really where they've sort of not been able to uh, regain market share. And then you know, looking at other businesses, the German retail business it, it has not been one uh, with a lot of opportunity. Right. And uh, asset management, they've they've sold off some of that. Um, so I think, you know, delivering on costs, I think, is something that, you know, Soming has made it very clear that he is going to deliver on that. Well, hold on um, one second, Allison, because this is actually really important. You say delivering on costs. In other words, job cuts. But uh, I want to quote uh, the head of Hermes EOS on Bloomberg Television saying job cuts in itself are not a new strategy and they're also not value creating. So Correct. do they actually give a strategy or do they just look at cost savings? So from a strategic perspective, um, the changes, and and I think they're really more sort of at the at the margin. You know what what they had said with the last quarter's earnings is that um, they are going to try to you know rein in and just focus more on their core competencies, more of a focus on the European business, pull back from the U.S. rates business about ten percent, and then you know with, similarly within the global equities unit, um, again just fo- trying to to cut down the business and focus more on the profitability aspect of that. Um, and so, um, you know, to your point, job cuts in and of itself, and it sort of doesn't matter the size of the cuts, it matters yeah. where you're cutting and how effective it's going to be. And, you know, the, the tougher part of it is, you know, you can come in and cut jobs, but can you do it in a way that um, you can kind of still keep your good people that you, um, and, and that's not to say that everyone's not good, but, but to keep the people that are, um, you know, imperative to the strategy, the people that are in the units that they want to focus on, you know, you're going to want to keep morale up yeah. and keep those people. Um, and can you do that successfully when you're in uh, this broad, more broadly cutting mode that creates a lot of uncertainty for everyone? And Alison, also doing it quickly enough. We all know, Correct. and I keep going back to this, we all know some really talented individuals at Deutsche Bank who have stayed with the bank despite the last few years, which have been terribly difficult for morale. But at the same time, Alison, this equities story has been hanging over this bank now for months and months and months. Can you imagine trying to work in the equities business over the last few months at Deutsche Bank and trying to gain 
any kind of business from anywhere at all when there are reports that that unit is going to be demolished over the next couple of months. And I think that is what you've seen in the equities revenue numbers. And I mean, keep in mind, you know, the prime business was one of the the businesses that that really suffered uh, with some of the legal concerns. That's not surprising, you know, versus several years ago when all of the banks were weak during the crisis. Here you had someone that people were worried about the viability of the of the franchise, and they had other people to pick from. And what we learned from the crisis is once people make those decisions, they generally tend not to go back. So even yeah. though Deutsche Bank may have retained those clients, um, part of the wallet may have going to peers. J.P. Morgan talked about some of the progress they've made in international prime over the years. And and even though Deutsche said they've won back the clients, they haven't had, you know, the the upside and growth that some of the U.S. peers had. So I think that gives, um, you know, credence to the story that it has been um, tough to try to, um, you know, not only win back market share, but sort of keep what you have, um, you know, with, with, with a tough environment at one company, you know, in general, the environment's challenging, but stronger competitors. Alison Williams of Bloomberg Intelligence, great to catch up with you on the story that keeps on giving. And the big question, you know, John, honestly, is are we watching the beginnings of an emerging markets crisis? It's a good question. And and does the central bank in Turkey have any credibility um, with the market? Because quite clearly, 300 basis points in an interest rate hike yesterday wasn't enough to, to stem the bleeding of the Turkish lira. Yeah. Well, one person who says this is not a crisis is Jeff Dennis. Let's bring him in. He is the head of global emerging markets at UBS Investment Bank. We love having him on. Jeff, thank you so much for being with us. You wrote in a report, this is not a crisis. In another report, this is not a crisis. So, uh, yeah. you know, at, at a certain point, you have an increasing number of voices saying this could be the precursor of something that we saw in 1997 and 1998. Why do you think it is not? I think the comparisons in 97, 98 are, are frankly ridiculous. Um, what was uh, certainly there are countries like Turkey that do have very weak fundamentals that are being picked over by investors in, in a rising dollar environment, as we've got at the moment. But in the late 90s, you had a number of Asian countries running 6, 7, 8% current account deficits. They all had fixed exchange rates. They were running out of reserves. Um, it was just a, a much less stable environment than we've got today. One of the advantages for emerging markets of a floating exchange rate regime, which of course is what everybody's uh, started to adopt since the Asian crisis of the late 90s, it gives you a, uh, an, an ability to take some of the pressure out the pressure cooker by actually allowing the currency to go down. I still think you have to look at Turkey as a little bit of a one-off in, in this environment. I think what's very interesting about the situation this morning is although there's still a lot of doubts about what's happening in Turkey, some of the other EM currencies that have been under pressure recently, like the RAND and like the peso in Mexico, the Brazilian real, are well off their lows. And so this yeah. still feels to me like an individual country problem, not a general emerging market problem. Jeff, to that point, the price action of the last couple of days does suggest that Turkey is decoupled from the wider EM story. So let's spend a little bit of time talking about Turkey. Mm. An emergency Mm -hmm. 300 basis point hike yesterday, but the Mm. events and how they rolled out and how they played out were really interesting. First, we find out there's a central bank meeting, an emergency one, because we Mm -hmm. weren't expecting one until the first week of June. And then the Mm -hmm. deputy prime minister of Turkey goes on Twitter and says it's time to regain the confidence of investors. Was that the Mm -hmm. government giving the central bank the green light yesterday, Jeff? 
Um, I suspect that is the case, that it was the government giving the central bank the green light. And um, and if that was a kind of oblique signal to do that, that, that's kind of helpful because, of course, as you imply by your question there, Jonathan, that actually the backdrop to all of this is the clear desire of President Erdogan to get involved directly in monetary policy in Turkey, which is obviously what he said in the statements a few days ago, which is what set the thing going. So I think, to be honest, the speed with which, even though a rate rise was definitely needed, and the speed with which it came through was somewhat surprising and perhaps does indicate that the government, uh, so to speak, might have given them a, you know, a, a behind the hand, if you like, green light. Um, mm. I think the point we make here is that um, this is probably the minimum they had to do. It's pushed real interest rates in Turkey up to about 500 basis points plus. There's still concerns about things such as the high price of oil, a very wide current account deficit, as I've said. So it remains to be seen whether this will be enough. And certainly we're not changing our recommendations on Turkey. We're underweight in equities. We don't like the currency generally. So it's a wait and see here. But this probably did move through a bit quicker than we'd anticipated. Yeah. So uh, the answer, Jonathan Farrow, is that uh, Jeff Dennis over at UBS is not sticking his hand in this blender. Uh, It is like trading a blender, um, (laughs) trying to do anything. Indeed. It's just, brutal. God, what a brutal image. Jeff, I do want to get your sense, though. You're saying uh, that it, that Turkey is an idiosyncratic story. We have a bunch of idiosyncratic mm. stories. We also have Argentina. Uh, we also have elections mm. that are coming up in Mexico. We mm. have some issues mm. uh, in Southeast Asia. I'm just wondering, at what point do these idiosyncratic stories add up to something more, especially given the fact that we've seen so much money go into emerging markets through exchange-traded funds, through indexed strategies mm. that are indiscriminate? Mm. The point we make about all of this is this is all at the margin being driven by the rebound of the dollar. The dollar's gone from 125 against the euro to 117 over the last several months. That always pulls money out of EM. It pushes currencies under pressure. And of course, what that has done is, as they poked holes in some of the weaker stories. Now, um, the house view here is the dollar goes back down again later this year towards the 130 level. Obviously, the Italian situation is a bit of a risk to that view, but that's what the house view is here. Now, if that's wrong, um, and the dollar continues to rally, well, these things will become a more generalized crisis. I think the point we're trying to make here is on our long-term view on the U.S. dollar, there's not enough going wrong in the emerging markets overall, even though you've got politics in Brazil and politics in Mexico, and Argentina's obviously been a concern. There's not enough negative going on in EM to cause a major crisis here now, um, especially if the dollar goes back down again. Now, your last point is very important. We've seen massive amounts of money come into EM, $54 billion into EM equity funds, so far this year, and very little of that seems to have gone out so far. If some of that does start to come out, that will be a little bit of a negative. But we see this as a temporary decline in EM driven by a stronger dollar, which ultimately we think will roll over and will give us a better environment for emerging markets later this year. Jeff, it's almost the EM equivalent of a stock picker's market at the moment. Pick your spots, take Mm -hmm. your opportunities and make sure you've got a long time horizon. If you apply that to EM right now, Jeff, what are you looking at? Well, we, um, we, there's actually not a lot of markets, major markets, we've got big overweights, and we like Russia, we like we like Korea, where we think the earnings numbers are going to start to improve again. We actually, in terms of markets that have been under pressure recently, we're taking, uh, well, you know, we have an overweight in Indonesia, so we'd buy that back. Those are three markets that I think are worth looking at. Selective exposure in, in Central Europe, um, more neutral in countries like India and China, but those are some of the markets that we're looking at. 
um, um, in this environment. But our big call here is the dollar's going back down again eventually, and that's going to bring the sentiment back, I think, for EM. Jeff, what would have to happen to make you rethink your thesis that this is not a crisis and that everything is just fine? Two things. First of all, an ongoing dollar rally. Dollar continues to move up. Say U.S. inflation goes up more than we think and the Fed's got to do more. Our house view here, for example, is the U.S. inflation pressure is going to fade a little bit in the second half of the year. But if inflation continues to rise, the Fed's got to get more aggressive. Bond yields go up a lot more, pushing the dollar higher. That would obviously mean more outflows from EM. From a fundamental point of view, what I'm watching above all is the earnings momentum. Now, corporate earnings growth in EM last year was extremely strong, north of 20%. Uh, the, the, the forecasts are running around 15 this year. Our own numbers are a little higher than that. If those earnings numbers start to come under pressure, that would indicate that the, the pressure we've had on currencies recently on the markets generally is starting to contaminate the corporate story, and that would make me a little bit more cautious. So from a fundamental point of view, we'd definitely look at the earnings numbers as well as, of course, monitoring the U.S. currency. Just to wrap things up, just finally, Jeff, what's the response of the Federal Reserve if EM does fall out of bed? Do we have a Federal Reserve that is less sensitive or increasingly sensitive to what's happening abroad? Because Jay Powell spoke about EM very recently. didn't suggest to me we had a Federal Reserve chair that was sensitive to what was happening abroad. I, I don't think the Fed is going to uh, remotely uh, design policy based on what's going on abroad unless you have yeah. a, a fully-fledged crisis. I want to make the point, EM is down 10 to 11% from, a, from the high. It is no, this is not a crisis. The Chinese currency hasn't moved. It's a good Some point. of the big Asian c- countries have not moved at all. This is idiosyncratic. It's driven by the dollar. I think the dollar will play a role in the Fed's policy as part of their, their metrics. But what's going on in EM, unless you end up with a full-blown crisis, which you're not going to have in in our view, that's not going to make a lot of difference to them. Hey, Jeff, really strong and really reasoned, and we appreciate your time this morning. Jeff Dennis, UBS Head of Global Emerging Market Strategy. Scott Mushkin joins us now. He is Wolf Research Senior Retail Analyst, uh, joining us by phone. Scott, so what happened here? Why are people uh, trading down Best Buy shares so much right now? Yeah, thanks for thanks for having me on. I think their shares are down because of profitability. Um, you know, they had a monster comp as you as you're talking about, seven point one percent is just incredible. Um, but the the flow through to the bottom line, I think, was less than people expected, given that that comp. And frankly, that's exactly what happened with Target yesterday. Um, you know, strong sales, um, but the profitability wasn't uh, wasn't there, and I think it's concerning. Uh, it's concerning some investors. What does this mean that they're basically slashing prices so much and offering such discounts that they don't actually make any money? Is that the uh, answer here? So, so I don't think it's the prices that they're slashing. It's the cost of doing business. It's the omni-channel cost to do business. So it's the delivery. It's the in-store service. I see. So it's just costing more now to be a retailer and to be a relevant retailer. And again, same thing with Target yesterday. All right. So if it's the same thing with Target yesterday, uh, is this eventually going to work out in their favor or are they going down the wrong path? No, I I actually think Best Buy is going down the right path. Um, I think they are creating relevance for themselves. um, And uh, Hubert, who runs the company, has done an amazing job uh, emphasizing culture. Uh, We're seeing, I think, a distancing uh, between, you know, what I consider surviving retailers and uh, ones that are probably going to be more trouble. I put, you know, Home is not just a survivor, it's a thriver. Um, you know, clearly Best Buy 
uh, last man standing in that industry, but putting a strategic plan that, that makes sense. Um, and Target looks like it's, it's moving into that category now, too, with, with what Brian Cornell is doing over there. So, no, they're, they're doing the right stuff. It's just costing them, it's costing them some money. Scott, you know what I'm struck by? People talk about how there really hasn't been that much inflation. And yet it seems like there are these extra costs. Prices are going up, certainly for the retailers. They're just absorbing them, uh, and it sort of is cutting into their bottom line rather than passing along uh, the the increases with higher prices for consumers. Is that really what's going on here? Such a great question, and, and, and to a degree, yes. And the, where we're seeing it the most right now, where we're most nervous about what you're talking about, is in the consumables area. Uh, price increases go right through Bentonville, Walmart's headquarters. Um, Walmart's been dragging their feet on, on raising prices in, in consumables, and that's making everybody nervous. I mean, obviously, we had Campbell's report um, and talked about you know, really no pricing power. Um, so this is an issue. We do have rising costs. We have rising logistics costs. We have rising labor costs. In some cases, rising input costs. Um, and you know, right now, there's a lot of friction at retail to get that pricing through. Uh, some other people, like the Sherwin Williams and Paint, um, they're they're having more success. Um, but right now, consumables is a focal point of, you know, will we see price? Um, right now, we're not. Is the idea here that when retailers have tried to raise prices on these consumables, people just go elsewhere? That that they they just lose too much volume? Yes, and and. It's also business plans. You know, Walmart's plan is to take a lot of share, so they're they're getting a lot of volume share, um, and that's offsetting some of uh, the rising costs that they're seeing. So their 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 plan is to take share in the U.S. and so it's different agendas at different companies. And right now, Walmart's agenda is to take share, and they haven't let price through as much as we would have thought. Uh, we'll see as time goes on, by the way, because these pressures are are building. So it, it's definitely a fluid situation. Hey, Scott Mushkin, what's next for these companies? I mean, is it uh, getting their online game in order? Is it making the stores more attractive or shrinking the store footprint? What's next for them? I mean, I think it's optimizing the stores, as you talk about. I think it's omni-channel. Then it gets very specific to companies like Target, where we really believe they need to have a complete shop. They have to do more with their food. Um, it, so it depends on, you know, it's company to company, um, but generally optimizing the store base, improving the store experience, and then working uh, their omni-channel and having a very good e-commerce and, and website. So that's what's, that, that's what's next, and they got to keep, you know, they got to hope the economy keeps humming. Scott, who is the most vulnerable? I mean, we continue to think the most vulnerable companies are what we call the multi-regional uh, supermarket chains, guys like Kroger, Ahold, uh, Albertsons, and merging into Rite Aid. Uh, and the reason is, is Amazon is really going after the consumables area with, you know, with Whole Foods. Uh, but there's other, other factors there. You have Aldi. Uh, you have Walmart building share, which I just talked about. Um, you have very strong regional chains, like an HEB down in Texas or a Damula's up in Boston. So those those companies are, are really fighting a pretty strong battle, and we you know, we just talked about the lack of pricing power there too. So those are the ones we we worry about the most. All right, we got to leave it there, but I want to thank you very much, Scott Mushkin. He is a senior retail analyst and managing director for Wolf Research, uh, talking about uh, Best Buy as well as uh, the efforts on behalf of uh, Target uh, by Brian Cornell. Very interesting uh, stuff. 
here to give us more details and to explain what's going on with President Donald Trump and the, uh, it seems to be, off meeting between uh, the president and North Korea's leader, Kim Jong-un. I want to bring in uh, Craig Gordon, executive editor uh, for Bloomberg, uh, Bloomberg bureau chief for uh, Washington, D.C. Uh, Craig, uh, a uh, surprise or not so much a surprise? As President Trump previously had said, he didn't know whether the meeting would take place. Yeah, I'm a little surprised that we got this letter this morning. I think there would definitely the, there were a lot of bearish signs that the summit was going to take place. There had been a lot of verbal sniping back and forth between the two sides. Trump seemed to keep open the possibility as late as yesterday that the meeting might still go forward. But yeah, we uh, he dropped a letter on Kim Jong-un this morning saying that uh, based on Kim's rather bellicose statements about uh, Mike Pence and a few other things that have come out lately, that there's really no reason to go forward with the summit in Singapore. Well, having said that, uh, this also comes at a time when North Korea said it shut its nuclear test site ahead of the planned meeting. Could this be a situation where the president got what he wanted and then decides it doesn't necessarily make sense for the U.S. to meet with North Korea? Sure, that's a possibility. I mean, it's interesting to me because both sides seem to be doing, you know, little trust-building steps to try to salvage the summit. They obviously shut down the nuclear facility or destroyed it, blew it up, whatever they did. Trump and uh, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo have been kind of easing back on Trump's early rhetoric that there had to be sort of immediate denuclearization. Pompeo said in testimony yesterday that it had to be verifiable. Uh, Trump said on Fox News this morning that it had to be uh, sort of, it could be phased in, they'd be okay with that. And everybody seemed to be trying to kind of dance around a little bit to try to find ways to salvage this thing. Obviously, Trump decided there was really not much point in going forward, and so he, uh, he canceled it with this letter. Well, it's certainly showing up in markets right now. S&P 500, uh, which was uh, making a move higher in early trading, down now about four-tenths of a percent. Uh, Craig, do you think this has anything to do with the president's meeting with uh, South Korea's leader? Um, it's possible, although, you know, we know that the South Korean leader was very interested in trying to have this happen. Obviously, the North and South have been having some of the, I mean, dramatic, we all saw the dramatic images of Kim walking across the, the DMZ, uh, the sort of warm embrace there. I think, you know, the South Korean leader is known to be somebody who wants, uh, Moon wants to have this meeting, wants to try to turn down the temperature on the peninsula. All those nuclear weapons and uh, conventional weapons are pointed right at him, frankly, first and foremost, so he's eager to make this happen. Um, so it's not really clear. We didn't have a very clear signal coming out of the meeting uh, earlier this week when uh, Trump and Moon met of what, where this was headed. But as I say, you know, it, it, it felt like there was a chance it could still come together, but there was definitely a lot of headwinds that this thing was running into. And so while I'm surprised by the timing, I'm not surprised by the outcome. All right. Uh, Craig Gordon, uh, Bloomberg's uh, bureau chief in Washington. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.